0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Nelson. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Charlie Laterman, who is a lecturer at King's College London. His forthcoming book is Sharing the Burden, the Armenian Question, Humanitarian Intervention, and the Anglo-American Visions of Global Order. In Sharing the Burden, Dr. Lederman argues that the successive Armenian massacres that took place between the 1890s and the 1920s were at the center of debates over humanitarianism and global order at the turn of the 20th century. Dr. Lederman's book challenges the notion that humanitarian intervention originated as a form of international politics in the latter half of the 20th century. And it exposes the way that imperial ambitions suffuse the ideas and practices of turn-of-the-century humanitarianism. Sharing the Burden will come out with Oxford University Press in September 2019. Charlie Laterman, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much. It's, it's great to be here. So could you uh start off with telling us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to this topic?
2: Yes, so my name's, um, uh, well, so you you know my name is Charlie Lederman, but um, I'm I'm a lecturer at um, at King's College London in the War Studies Department. And uh, yes, this is my first academic job. I've had fellowships at um, the University of Cambridge and at Yale and at the University of Texas Um, and across that sort of uh, transatlantic existence. That's what um, allowed me to write this book. So I'm very grateful to those institutions um, for for giving me those opportunities. Um, And I really came to this book. Really from actually one of my first days as a as a graduate student, um, I started um, doing a master's program at the University of Cambridge. And just before actually I started my program, my supervisor there, uh, Professor Brendan Sims, was doing a, um, a a colloquium on the history of humanitarian intervention, and he asked me to to organize it for him. So um, that, that colloquium ultimately became a book on humanitarian intervention. And it was while doing research on that, and while um, really um, getting a chance to hear from some really distinguished scholars in the field that I started to think, well, what what would I quite like to do if I was to write um, um, something on the history of humanitarian intervention? And through that, I got into a study of the debates over the American response um, to the Armenian question from the mid 1890s through to uh, the 1920s. And out of that, it became clear to me that that wasn't just I think, as it had been seen previously as as quite a a niche issue and quite a a small part of the period. But my sense was that it tied into some much bigger questions to do with the American rise to world power, its relationship with the British Empire, and really the whole um, um, conception of international order during that period. Um, My sense was actually there was some some big themes that came out of a study of that topic.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. So could you just really briefly kind of give us a sense of the status of the historiography when you came to this topic? Or what kinds of questions and historiographical debates really fascinated you?
2: Well, really, the um, the Armenian question, what was particularly interesting to me is that some of the big, big books on, um, on humanitarian intervention and on the response to questions of, of genocide and the Armenian issue, certainly in American history, have been seen as as, as, a, as an important starting point. Um, Samantha Power's um, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, A Problem from Hell on America and the Age of Genocide, starts with the American response to the Armenian genocide. And there was a sense to which the, um, the, the failure to intervene on behalf of the Armenians during the First World War was really the initiation of a, a decided or at least a, um, a consistent policy that the United States adopted during the 20th century of... Um, I think the the expression would be um, sort of an element of indifference from official circles um, to these questions, even if um, on a public level there was a huge outpouring of humanitarian relief. And you see the same thing, uh, Gary J. Bass, who wrote a wonderful book on um, the origins of humanitarian intervention, Freedom's Battle, his book ends where Samantha Power's book starts with the Armenian genocide and the um, American response to it, and particularly uh, Theodore Roosevelt's role in um, advocating intervention for the Armenians during the First World War. So before coming to this question, it, it was it was clear to me that this was was seen as an important topic, but my sense was that um, what hadn't necessarily been appreciated previously was its connection to these bigger questions, as I said, of, of the American rise to world power, how this tied in to questions of the United States emergence, not just as a great power, but as, as an imperial power at the turn of the 20th century, but also its relationship with the British Empire, and so um, recently there has been um, books that have come out on the British response to the Armenian genocide. and There's a number of, um, of, of really good books um, on that topic, and uh, my sense was that there wasn't necessarily a book that looked at the way in which the way in which both nations responded to um, to the Armenian question tied into these broader questions of Anglo-American relations and the way in which the two powers together wanted to sort of reconstitute international order.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So on that note, before we really dig into the book and the chapter's substance, I did want to talk a little bit more about the framing of the narrative. Um, Sure. So, you know, the title itself, Sharing the Burden, the Armenian Question, Humanitarian Intervention, and the Anglo-American Visions of Global Order, I think it really foregrounds that the book is not necessarily about the Armenian genocide, right? And it's not even necessarily about Armenians' as a particular people or ethnic group, right? Your focus is really on how the Armenian question cuts across this political relationship between Great Britain and the United States and how the massacres spur new questions about humanitarianism, intervention, and imperial power, right? That,
2: that, that's absolutely right. It, mm-hmm. it, it was, it, when, when My sense was that this was a fundamental issue in particularly in American politics and tied into a much broader debate um, over intervention that we start to see in the mid-1890s and debates that we see in the United States that tie in with intervention on behalf of other peoples as well. Um, but the what what occurs in the mid-1890s, um, the massacre um, in the Ottoman Empire, what is known as the Hamidian massacres of hundreds of thousands of Armenian uh, Christians in the, in the Ottoman Empire, is seen as sort of the emblematic example of inhumanity perpetrated by a government. So, it's it's used throughout this period um, to compare to other um, examples of what are seen as uh, barbarous conduct, and um, that's the expression that's used by um, by governments. So that's that's uh, the comparison is made with what the um, the Spanish are doing in Cuba, what the um, what the um, uh, Tsarist Russian regime is doing to its Jewish population, um, and also even in relation to what is going on with. Um, uh, King Leopold's um, colony in the Congo. So, as as you say, it, it's the book itself is not necessarily about um, in it, it, sort of an inside out um, study of the Armenian question. There's a number of very very good studies that look at the Armenian question in that way. What um, this book tries to do is is to is to set this issue within these debates about, as you say, imperial power, but also larger questions of international order and and debates over intervention.
0: Right. Yes. So I'm really looking forward to getting into kind of more of the details about that in your subsequent chapters. But I did sort of want to ask, you know, as historians of international history or US in the world, you know, often we have to make sure the stories of our less powerful actors don't sort of simply become subsumed or invisible, right, in our story about imperial powers. Is that something you found yourself kind of grappling with as you developed the book's narrative framing?
2: Uh, to, to, to a certain extent, yes. But my my sense was always that this this was a question about um, about how this, these issues featured within the larger questions of um, of the American rise to world power. And my sense was that this was a debate that was going on in the United States, and I was interested really in how external actors um, contribute to that debate. So. In the the 1890s in particular, that is a debate that's going on in the United States but which British actors are influencing. But by the time we get to the First World War, and particularly the aftermath of the First World War, and and I'm sure we'll get into this a bit more in the discussions, but it is something where um, Armenian Americans in particular, in in relations with their um, 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 compatriots and leaders of um, Armenian um, organisations, in the Ottoman Empire and in Europe, um, influence those debates, and it's also something where um, Turkish figures start to influence those debates when it when when the question is about what the United States is going to do in the aftermath of the First World War. So, as you say, it, it's certainly it's certainly not something in the eighteen nineties in relation to that larger debate where Armenian actors are playing a major role in that debate. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something which increasingly as the as the story goes on uh, becomes becomes a a much more important issue
0: mhm Yeah, so as you've already sort of touched on, right, the Armenian genocide itself is usually dated to the World War One years and slightly after, so from around nineteen fourteen or fifteen to the early nineteen twenties. But you really take the first few chapters to show that the genocide was really a sort of apotheosis of decades and and centuries of ethnic conflict and fissures right within the Ottoman Empire. So can you kind of give us that broader context across the nineteenth century and kind of discuss how those intra-imperial tensions were related to inter-imperial tensions between the Ottoman Empire? and its European neighbours?
2: Yes, exactly. So the, that, that's, a, that's a really good point. It's something where you can't really understand what occurs in 1915 without placing it in its broader historical context. And it's why the book is, is about the Armenian question as it becomes um, a major factor in European politics, in particular from the late 19th century. And really, it's the case that um, the Armenians for a long time um, have, even though they've got a, quite a strong... Um, uh, civic um, identity of the, of their own, uh, they live within the Ottoman Empire in relative harmony f- for a number of years. When they when they come under Ottoman um, under Ottoman rule, but by the time you get to the beginning of the nineteenth century, as the Ottoman Empire is seeming to be in decline, and there's um, clashes in Europe over. Um, what is referred to as the Eastern Question of what's going to become of this empire that is seen as moribund and is um, is on the verge, um, at least in the European mind, of collapse. The famous expression that the Ottoman Empire is the, is the sick man of Europe. Mm. Um, ultimately, debates start to occur about um, what's going to what's going to occur in the Ottoman Empire, and European powers start to um, interfere um, in in the Ottoman Empire on behalf of. Um, minority groups, and they do so um, to advance their own interests, while at the same time, um, at least publicly, talking about um, the the idea that they've got to maintain Ottoman territorial integrity for the good of the peace of Europe. So that doesn't stop them um, interfering. And it's really, in the aftermath of one of these large-scale interferences, the Russian intervention um, against the Ottomans in the Russo-Ottoman War of the mid to late 1870s, you get the internationalization of the Armenian question. Um, that um, war is, is specifically about um, the Bulgarians, the famous um, Bulgarian horrors that uh, William Gladstone in Britain makes a, makes a major issue in British politics. But it's um, in relation to that, when, when the Russians occupy part of the Caucasus, promises are made to the Armenians and there's um, some talk of, of them coming under Russian control, but the British and the Austro-Hungarians intervened to prevent that from happening because it was going to expand Russian interests um, towards the Mediterranean, which is something neither of them wanted. But as a result of that, you get this internationalization of the Armenian question where the powers um, make statements and promises to to secure um, the Armenian security within the Ottoman Empire. But ultimately that falls down the diplomatic agenda after the 1870s. But it's really from about from about that period onwards as the Ottoman Empire is looking in a particularly perilous state that the position of the Armenians deteriorates yet further in the Ottoman Empire and it's um, this culminates in what occurs in the mid 1890s with the Armenian massacres where really that is the time where this becomes a major major international issue and in the 1870s it's more a diplomatic issue in the 1890s this becomes a major public issue Um, across um, Europe and North America.
0: Mm -hmm. So I think the book does a really wonderful job of exploring the religious politics, both within the Ottoman Empire, but then also how those religious politics create or exacerbate tensions between the Ottoman Empire and its neighboring imperial powers. So can you kind of flesh out for us what relationship these various ethnic nationalisms and their religious traditions, how, how foreign missionaries figure in this kind of larger tapestry of great power politics?
2: Yes, um, well, the missionaries are are fundamental, particularly from the American point of view. I mean, the the United States, while not being a player in these big questions to do with what's going to happen with the Ottoman Empire, actually has the largest missionary presence of any nation in the the Ottoman Empire that starts from the 1820s and um, really by the turn of the 20th century has reached a, a major um, impact in the Ottoman Empire and the focus for the Americans is in Anatolia, is in and around particularly the Armenian provinces. So the Americans who go to the Ottoman Empire initially want to convert Muslims, they want to convert Jews as well, but particularly Muslims is their, is their main focus. But ultimately um, they're prevented from doing so, they have very little luck with doing that, but it's also illegal um, in the Ottoman Empire I and mean, proselytizing is something which um, the ottomans are, are not necessarily happy, but they are willing to accept among the sort of Christian minority populations and that is really where the Americans focus after it becomes clear that the um that they're not going to be able to uh, have a large scale conversion process with um, with ottoman muslims and their sense is that these um these Christians who are in the Armenian case they're seen as the oldest christians in the world um there's a um, they're, they're the first nation who take on um, Christianity as, as a as a um, full community. And um, it, it's sort of fundamental to Armenian national identity. The sense is that Noah's Ark landed on Mount Ararat. Um, and this is the, the most sort of important geographical site um, in the Armenian territories. And ultimately, the Americans um, build up a, a major... Um, influence among the Armenians but their sense with those with the Armenians is that they are going to turn these sort of eastern questions into examples of sort of western-style Protestantism and that this will then act as a beacon to the um, empire's Muslim subjects and that that will show just how attractive Christianity can be um, but as I said that's not the United States might have the largest presence they're not the only power with missionary presences in the empire um, the French are quite um, active um, in particular in the Arab provinces. Um, ultimately, um, what we see there among these missionaries is that they're playing a larger and larger role in the empire and they're starting to, um, these, these nations, um, these, these communities in the Ottoman Empire, like um, initially the Bulgarians who the Americans have a role with, um, they are, they're basically developing na- a national identity and that causes uh, friction with the Ottoman Empire. This isn't a sense that they're just providing them with spiritual sustenance. They're ultimately providing sort of political outlets. And these nations ultimately um, rise up against the Ottoman Empire and the Sultan and the Ottoman government see this as, as the missionaries playing a major role within this, um, inspiring rebellion and revolution. And that obviously, as you say, causes major friction. And at the same time, in the aftermath of um, the Ottoman defeat um, to the the Russian Empire, what happens in the aftermath of that war is refugees from the Balkans, Muslim refugees, are sort of um, ethnically cleansed into the Ottoman territories. And the Sultan ultimately emphasizes a um, quite conservative um, Islamic identity in order to consolidate his fragile regime. But at the same time, and um, This also leads to an exacerbation of, of, of tension with, um, with the Christian populations as well. So um, these conflicts that are going on a- across the Near East tied in with, these, uh, with this missionary role in the empire itself leads to sort of a, 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 a tinderbox really starting to emerge in the Ottoman Empire.
0: Mm-hmm. So in your first chapter, uh, you point out that Britain was, for largely kind of geopolitical and economic reasons, really invested in bolstering and supporting the Ottoman administration, especially to contain Russian expansion, which you sort of just mentioned. But American missionaries, as you've already said as well, were deeply embedded in and in some sense supportive of some articulation of Armenian nationalism or a kind of nominal independence. Um, So how does this fit against the backdrop of larger Anglo-American relations at the time?
2: It's a very interesting question because this is the time in American public life where the British are seen as the um as sort of the bête noir of um, of the United States. Um and um obviously in, in in American elections we see again and again the twisting of the lion's tail, um a sense to which um the British are um are seen as um, America's major rival in the world, um, and Ultimately, this comes to a head with the Venezuelan boundary dispute of 1895, where you get uh, the United States and Britain really for the, for the, for the last time really coming very close to, um, to, to a conflict. And it's really in the aftermath of that where the British, who previously had been, um, had, as you say, had played this role in the Ottoman Empire as, as upholding the um, Sultan and, and his rule against the threat from Russia, Ultimately, with the outbreak of the Armenian massacres, which which are occurring around the same time as the Venezuelan boundary dispute, um, it's in the aftermath of that um, you get a sort of a major sort of public outpouring of support for the Armenians in Britain. Both political parties um, are now very um, decidedly anti Ottoman. And the sense is that you can, um, you're looking around for um, a way of uh, really. trying to strengthen a rapprochement with the United States and moving beyond the disputes that have occurred earlier in the 19th century. And one issue that is seized upon by British politicians, particularly the colonial secretary Joseph Chamberlain, is that the United States has also seen this growth of um, of support um, for the Armenians in the aftermath of those massacres, and that perhaps you could use that issue and a possible intervention on on their behalf as a way to strengthen the bond between Britain and the United States.
0: Right, right. So, um, but this calculus of alliances, as you sort of point out, in that Britain nominally supporting the Ottoman government missionaries on behalf of the Armenians, it changes somewhat, right, with the Hamidian massacres. So can you tell us um, a little bit about what precipitated these Hamidian massacres and what effect they had, um, both in the Anatolian region, but also in the international community?
2: Yes. So um, the massacres that, that break out in the 1890s, um, as, as, as I say, after the, um, the Russo-Turkish war, the Ottoman Empire is in a, is in a pretty perilous state, that it's, um, its finances are struggling, it's lost huge amounts of its territory, and it's, um, it's lost um, uh, part of its population in the Balkans, who are then having to be assimilated back into the Anatolian region. And these tensions exacerbate With the Armenians. Um, And ultimately, what the Ottomans uh, do is they're trying to sort of strengthen their relationship with the Kurds in in the Caucasus region. And the Kurds are given um, to to a great extent um, sort of free reign to police and stabilize um, uh, that area. But ultimately, that leads to um, major conflict and um, really given sort of free reign to to target and and assault Armenian communities. Um, In the aftermath, Of that, um, the Armenians increasingly see the Ottoman Sultan as um, being tyrannical and no longer committed to their security. And in the 1890s, we see an attempt by by the Kurdish militias and Ottoman troops to try and collect um, a heavy taxation burden on the Armenian communities um, in, in, in Anatolia. And in the aftermath of that, um, there's there's large scale violence that breaks out, and um, the, the Ottomans are sort of determined to sort of stamp down on this. Any sense that there could be sort of a rebellion against the established order in the Ottoman Empire um, is, is 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 to be stamped out. And so ultimately, the Ottomans send in um, uh, send in troops, and a massacre results, and this causes a huge um, outpouring of of anger. Um, across Europe um, but as you say particularly in Britain which um, in the aftermath of um, of Gladstone's intervention in the 1870s on behalf of the Bulgarians has increasingly become a a a country that is antithetical to the Ottomans um for a variety of reasons the Russians are no longer uh, seen um at least in the in the public discourse as as much a, of a threat and the Ottomans are seen as um as, as, a, as a really dangerous um, authoritarian regime. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, so that, that sort of touches on another question I wanted to pose to you. I think this particular episode really illuminates how religion figured into race making of Ottoman Turks, right? How Islam and Turkishness become associated with, as you say, kind of barbarism or barbaric rule. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how these racial ideologies figured in the ways that observers talked about civilization and, and what kinds of imperial power were enlightened versus those were, that were barbaric.
2: Yeah, the language of civilization is, is, is ubiquitous during this period. And what you see during this time is, is say that the, the way in which civilization as, a, as an idea It works on a number of different levels. There's a sense to which um, there's a conception of European civilizations, but there's also a sense to which there's a hierarchy um, in and amongst these civilizations. So you might see um, European civilization um, as being above um, the civilization represented by Islamic empires and particularly by the the Ottoman Empire. But um, at the same time, within Britain and the United States, there's an increasing move in both countries towards a sense to which... Britain and the United States are at the sort of apex of civilization. And what you see um, in these is, is this sort of racially rationalized belief um, that the, the two nations have this sort of providential mission to unite, to advance some um, conception of, of progress and international order. And um, so that's sort of one side of the civilizational question is, is, is on the Western side. Um, and then the way in which they perceive of the Ottoman Empire is, um, as I say, is, is, is at the bottom of this sort of civilizational hierarchy. And as I say, it ties into, in, in, a, in a couple of ways, both seeing Islam, Islam as a religion as being um, problematic, but particularly its political manifestation in the Ottoman Empire is, 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 is a major issue. And so ultimately what we see is, is this religious perception of the Ottoman Empire um, that's tied into to a racial conception as well. But I think what's most powerful during this period because of the role of the missionaries is that it, this, this religious side ties in with sort of a, a growing language of Anglo-Saxonism as well. So we end up with sort of the way in which sort of Christianity-infused um, Anglo-Saxonism is, is sort of, we see this everywhere in, in the discussions in this period and that the Ottomans represent the sort of, as the language of the period, Um, is used as as sort of the the epitome of barbarism. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, So one of the things that I think surprised me most in this book was how the Armenian massacres actually figured in public discourse and in the press leading up to the Spanish-American War. Um, So can you speak a little bit more about how the press and how politicians were imagining a sort of connection between the Armenian massacres on the one hand and Spanish imperial rule in Cuba especially?
2: Yes um well, I think that is one of the things that most fascinated me as well I mean it's it's something which um when you when you're looking at these debates it's often the case um, in our questions about the Spanish American war there's questions about the imperial motives against uh, um um in relation to the american um, rise to to imperial power afterwards tied in with the um, the sort of humanitarian discourse in relation to um, to aid for the cubans mm-hmm. um and ultimately the, the language um, that we see by the sort of a yellow journalism of sort of the William Rand- Randolph Hearst press in particular is to utilise the, the Armenian issue and to really turn Cuba into America's Armenia. That's the expression that's used. And the, you, this is something which, um, which um, I'm not the, the first person to have, um, have shown um, um, these things, historians of the Spanish-American mm-hmm. War I've um, touched on some of these questions before, but I think what was fascinating to me was, one, how, um, how widely used um, this, this, um, this metaphor and this analogy was. How often the Armenian issue was invoked, not just to suggest that the Spanish were, as, um, as, as both politicians and publicists would say, um, the Turk of the, um, of the Western Hemisphere, And that was one side of it. But it was also to say, well, the Europeans stood by while the Ottomans perpetrated these atrocities against the Armenians. But we will intervene for the Cubans and ultimately show that we are a more moral um, and more um, enlightened power. And so that's a language that we see constantly. And it's also something, interestingly, which I don't think has been brought out to to, to a great extent previously, is the way in which um, the British press also tap into this as well. Um, whereas across Europe um, this is not necessarily something which we see um, in the European press this comparison but it's something which we see in the British press again and again the sense to which um, ultimately there there is a comparison between what the Americans are going to do on behalf of the Cubans um, or what they do on behalf of the Cubans and what European powers and Britain in particular should have done on behalf of the Armenians and so that's um, that's pervasive in, in the rhetoric of the, and the discourse of the period. Mm-hmm.
0: Just absolutely fascinating. Um, so I think this actually provides a sort of natural segue into um, your second chapter, uh, where you really get to the heart of what we might call a kind of imperial humanitarianism. right? And Theodore Roosevelt looms really large in this chapter. So, what does this portrait of Roosevelt help us understand, and and maybe what does it not help us understand uh, about the connection between imperial ambitions and humanitarianism in this really crucial period between 1900
2: and 1910? Yes, I mean, you absolutely. It, it, there's a complex interplay that goes on throughout this period between humanitarianism and empire, which is captured in the language of civilization, which is used in both um, uh, sections. But as you say, it's it's a it's an imperial conception of um of America's sort of role as an exporter of civilization that we see and um ultimately I think Roosevelt um is a fascinating figure within these questions is that he um is really the, the person who sets the terms of these debates both on the imperial question and on the humanitarian question or at least in term ultimately it's what he would describe as crimes against civilization and what he just des- what he sees as sort of Protection of, of certain um, persecuted minorities. Um, and ultimately, Roosevelt uh, sees these things as being interlinked. The language that he uses is the same language that justifies why European power should expand um, into Africa and into Asia. He uses the same language to justify why the United States or why. European powers have a responsibility to intervene on say on behalf of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire, and ultimately, um, I think for a long time there's been a sort of a corrective in the in the long-standing perception of Roosevelt as really a as 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 a realist figure who's 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 so focused on on power politics, and I think um, the historiography has has moved on a lot since that. sort of perception of Roosevelt as just someone who was sort of the the archetypal realist. there's been a sense to which he has these um, these ideals that, that are very important to him, and in particular, the language of civilization is fundamental. But what I don't think necessarily has been brought out before is how um, he sort of develops a set of principles on behalf of a certain conception of America's role to intervene, or certainly to protest, and in extreme cases to intervene when what he sees as crimes against civilization are being committed. And I think that's that's encapsulated um in his uh he, his nineteen oh four address to Congress where he lays out what what I describe as, as as his second corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. And his his first corollary to the Monroe Doctrine is well known. Um it expands America's presence and its um its sense of America's role of intervening in the Western Hemisphere, um and which is sort of seen as a as a sort of a an expansionist um, imperial doctrine. But ultimately, what, what I thought was very interesting was the way in which he bolts on to this is not just a sense that this corollary to intervene in, in the Americas, which is sort of seen as the United States joining the European imperial powers in policing the world, he bolts on this second corollary that says that the United States has a responsibility um, to intervene, even when powers that seem to be nominally civilized, such as, say, um the Russians mistreat um, their Jewish population, or the, the Ottomans mistreat their Armenian population. Obviously, the Ottomans are slightly hybrid in Roosevelt's conception. Um they're not um they're certainly not seen as part of the sort of civilized powers, but they are a major power, and um Roosevelt um justifies America's responsibility to intervene by invoking those examples um, both of Russian Jews and of Armenian mm-hmm. Christians.
0: I was really struck by the quote that you pulled um, in response to the the Russian massacres of of Jews that that Roosevelt encouraged his sort of fellow politicians to mind their own Kishniefs, if I'm recalling that quote yeah. correctly.
2: The the, the Kishniev pogrom, I think, plays plays a major role within this as it's um, America's diplomatic response to um, to Russia's uh, pogrom in. Um, of its of its Jewish population in um, in 1903, and Roosevelt at the same time is also justifying sending American um, gunboats to the Eastern Mediterranean um, to uh, to protect its missionaries. Um, and, it, and at the same time, there is an outbreak of um, of a sort of a, a renewed um, um, Armenian massacre after an uprising in the Ottoman Empire. So what Roosevelt um, wants to do is is to justify. Um, America's responsibility to do that and at the same time other nations are saying well wh- what right do you have to do this I mean, what's going on in the United States what's going on in the American South with its lynching its, its African American population um, and Roosevelt ultimately um, delivers this, uh, this address in 1904 his second corollary to the Monroe Doctrine as a way of in his mind answering that critique and saying why the United States should still be able to intervene when these things um, occur at least diplomatically
1: i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: So, um, So your third chapter delves a little bit more deeply into the connection between American missionaries in Armenia and ethnic nationalism during and after the Young Turk Revolution in 1908 and 1909. So can you give us a little bit of background about the relationship between Turkish nationalism and Armenian regional ethnic nationalism in the lead up to the revolution and during it?
2: Yes, and it's, it's it's a really interesting way that you, you frame that because I think what the missionaries think at the time is that this isn't necessarily going to be um, an ethnic nationalism. They see it as the Ottoman Empire um, reconstituting itself as a constitutional force. And so their sense is the way to solve the Armenian question is ultimately that um, you turn the Ottoman Empire into sort of this constitutional Regime in which the Armenians are given um, as sort of equal rights with um, with with Turk- and they're protected within this new um, more constitutional system and they and they see this revolution through the eye through the eyes of um, of uh, the Ottoman Empire almost reconstituting itself in the American image and they hold out a lot of hope for the um, for the young Turk revolution partly because they also see it as a way that they can sort of expand their, um, their evangelical mission in the Ottoman Empire and that this could then be a route from uh, this, this sort of reconstitution of a more constitutional system into a way that um, they can spread the gospel and they can spread um, Christian, Christianity beyond um, the Armenian population to the wider Ottoman um, uh, populace.
0: I do want to tie in James Barton here, because he's a fascinating yes. character, right? And his ideology yes. seem to illuminate some of these tensions in how the missionaries perceived the Young Turks. So can you tell us a little bit more about James Barton and, and his engagement with the Wilson administration after the revolution?
2: Yes, um, I mean Barton is um is 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 he is a, a very fascinating figure. And I think um just in general, I I would I would urge um um people to to look into the American Board of Commissioners foreign missions um archives which are their their archives are so vast um and they're so um well uh, maintained so that you get um huge amounts of material written by missionary leaders um that sort of give insights into the politics of the countries where they've been based so barton had been a missionary in the ottoman empire but by the time of the young turk revolution he's um moved back to the United States and is really a, a foreign secretary for the missionary movement, but he, con- he continues to have a major interest in what's going on in the Ottoman empire. And he sees the young Turk revolution as being the sort of embodiment of a new wave in international politics of, of nations moving away from um, their sort of more um, established traditions. And uh, as, as you say, tied in with this language of civilization that um, that all nations are progressing towards sort of a certain end goal that um, that, that that is similar, and that, that ultimately this would allow um, the Americans to expo- expand out and um, spread these um, these these ideas of, of Christian gospelism, um, and that's tied up in the in in the language. Um, the, the expression of the time is um, is is the evangelization of the world in this generation, and the idea is that ultimately. Um, because of the sort of growing interconnection of the world, globalization has sort of allowed missionaries to have these opportunities now to spread the gospel in a way that they'd never had before. And they really believe that um, that being able to spread the gospel is something which which they can do and that they can move beyond anything that they've been able to achieve previously in the Ottoman Empire.
0: Mm -hmm. So now when World War II breaks out in 1914 things get uh, complicated, to say the least. Um, yes. So can you walk us through the reasons why Woodrow Wilson's administration consistently refused to declare war on the Ottoman Empire? And uh, what role did Henry Morgenthau play in this decision-making process?
2: Yeah, I think that this, is, this is a fascinating question. It's something which, um, which there has been um, a number of, um, of studies on, and which, um, as I say, the, um, the, the Samantha Power book and the Gary J. Bass book have sort of focused in on the the refusal to declare war. I think um, the the American decision not to declare war in 1915, when when news of the atrocities first comes through, is more understandable. The United States wants to remain neutral. They don't want to to get involved in the First World War. Um, The only people who are really advocating intervention, both um, against Germany and against the Ottoman Empire, is is Theodore Roosevelt, who's, who's maintained this belief that the United States has a responsibility to join with the British Empire and intervene both um, in a conflict that he sees that's being fought for the sort of um, ideas of righteousness that he's he's always um, championed, but also it gives them this opportunity to intervene in the Ottoman Empire that he wanted to do during his administration but felt um, that the American public would never back him. But ultimately the majority of the American public, like Wilson, believe the United States' responsibility is to stay out of this conflict, It's to stay neutral in this conflict. And Morgenthau finds himself in a very difficult position of being in the Ottoman Empire when, when, when he's he's aware of what's going on, the reports are coming in of just the large-scale um, mass killing and the um, what he described um, as really sort of the, the murder of a nation that's going on during this, um, this period. And he is trying to sort of advocate to Wilson that um, the United States' Um, should do more, or he's certainly ad- advocating this to the State Department that they should do more to protest against this, but ultimately has to accept that the United States is neutral and isn't going to get involved in this conflict. But then, um, what he does do is help to pioneer this um, relief operation, this large scale relief operation that starts as the American Committee on Armenian and, and Syrian Relief, and ultimately. Um, Becomes Near East Relief, one of the largest um, private uh, philanthropic operations in American history, and um, ultimately the United States sends huge um, amounts of of money um, in relief um, to to um, support, particularly the Armenians. Um, So that's sort of where we are when, in one thousand nine hundred and seventeen, the United States enters the war against Germany. But ultimately, Wilson resists again and again, those who are are arguing that the United States should expand its war to the other central powers, um, and particularly to the Ottoman Empire, because ultimately, the United States does declare war um, by the end of 1917 on Austria-Hungary, but never declares war on the Ottoman Empire. It's it's something which uh, which it uh, refuses to do throughout the conflict. Um, And most people believe that this was to do with uh, the role of the missionaries and um, particularly to do with the sort of philanthropic questions but I, I think there's there's another question here obviously the missionaries um, have have a major influence in this and um, Wilson has a lot, a lot of connections with the missionary lobby but um, Wilson also sees his perception is that um in the aftermath of, um, of of information about the secret treaties that the Europeans are going to carve up the Ottoman Empire, he believes that the United States should remain separate from what the Europeans are trying to do, both in the war in general and in the Middle East specifically. And he thinks that, um, that ultimately the United States, which is an associated power in the conflict, should not be um, tied to what he sees as an attempt by the European powers to carve up the Middle East on the basis of very narrow imperialistic interests. So that is the other reason um, why Wilson uh, refuses to declare war on the Ottoman Empire and maintains that to the end of the conflict.
0: Right, right. So this sort of pivots into your fourth chapter, the Wilsonian solution, right? It sort of gets uh, toward the the last segment of your title, the the component about Anglo-American visions of global order, as you phrase it. So this chapter explores how the Armenian genocide fit into Wilson's broader calculations, as you're, as you're mentioning, about great power politics in Europe. And in this chapter, you sort of set up two opposing camps, right? One is the Wilsonian camp. Um, and the other is the Rooseveltian camp. Um, Wilson, of course, refused to declare war, but Roosevelt, meanwhile, calls U.S. neutrality a national disgrace. So, can you explain how each of these camps interpreted intervention in Armenia through the United States' relationship with Great Britain? Right, that seems to be one of the main kind of thorough lines through your book.
2: Yes, and that so that that's something which is which is, is the way in which which they do conceive of it. Um so, for Roosevelt, um, who's been an advocate. Um, from um, even before his presidency onwards, he sees the United States' interests being tied together with uh, with Britain. And um, he believes that the war um, is something where the United States should be intervening alongside the other allies and should be an ally itself. He sees Britain as representing not just Um, strategic um, interest for the united states but also sharing its um, its civilizational ideals and so he believes that the united states has a responsibility to do this and he's particularly angry at wilson who he sees as someone who sort of spouts these highfalutin um, ideals um but refuses to act on them so as he as as he says in relation to the ottoman empire the idea um, that that we are looking to make the world safer democracy is just insincere claptrap and mischievous nonsense, um <laughs> in his turn of phrase, if we don't declare war on the Ottoman Empire. So that's something which Roosevelt is adamant that um, ultimately that's his conception of of, of, of uh, humanitarianism as such. Um that ultimately powers should intervene on behalf of their of their ideals. Um whereas Wilson doesn't believe one that the United States um can do anything about this. During the conflict he's, um, he, he believes that ultimately um, the only way that the United States can do anything about the um, the Armenian question will have to be after the war because it, um, it can't intervene in the Ottoman Empire in an effective way, but he also doesn't think the United States should be intervening there because he's increasingly distrustful of the British Empire, even though wilson um, as um, as a number of books have shown, has a sort of a strong connection with um, a certain British liberal um, political traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his, his major heroes are people like William Gladstone, um, in particular, John Bright. And um, the, these, are, these are people that Wilson idealises. But he makes a distinction between what he sees as um, a sort of democratic advanced radicalism um, and Tory imperialism. And he sees that the British government in the war, he sees as being a representative of Tory imperialism. And ultimately, he thinks that the United States... That their role is not to be um, leading a certain global order in partnership with Britain. He wants to see the United States ultimately um, take on a role as a leader um, in international affairs, separate from Britain. And his sense is ultimately the United States can bring the other imperial powers up to what he sees as America's more elevated standards.
0: So, sort of moving toward the end of the war and the declaration of. on the Western Front, who exactly were the figures, particularly in Great Britain, that were so desperate for the United States to take up this Armenian mandate? And and why were these particular actors so desperate for the U.S. to participate in the League of Nations and global governance more broadly in this particular way?
2: Yes, I think that's something which I think um, was something that was particularly interesting to me because um, a a number of scholars recently have shown the importance of the question of an Anglo-American alliance as being the basis for British conceptions of the League of Nations. What uh, the British want out of the League of Nations is a closer relationship with the United States and that um, for British leaders, their sense at a time where they're concerned about their own nation's ability to continue to, to, to act as the dominant power in the international system their sense is that um that uh, together with the United States that is the way for Britain to maintain its power, and that the two powers together could basically run the world together and so with the idea of which nation is going to take on responsibility for the Armenians um ultimately what the British see is that um, that there's a strategic imperative in this that um by a power taking over control of these Border Armenian provinces and they conceive of an Armenia initially stretching from the Caucasus um, all the way to the Mediterranean. So this is a this is over a major area. They see it as strategically important because it will um, um, protect um, the route to India, uh, which is strategically important to the British Empire. It will also um, allow, ultimately, they don't want to see the French um, um, in there because they see them as their potential imperial competitor coming out of the war. They don't want to take on the responsibility themselves because they have their eyes on much more lucrative mandates elsewhere in the Middle East. And so the sense is that the United States is looked to um, for pragmatic reasons to take on um, that mandate. But there's also a very idealistic element to it as well because um, a number of figures in the United, in, in Britain, um, influential figures around Prime Minister David Lloyd George, um, including the Prime Minister himself to a great extent, believe that the way to cement this Anglo-American alliance after the war is through the mandate system, is through this idea that the British Empire and the United States together will govern what is described by Lloyd George and by others at the time as as, as backward peoples. And so this is where you really see the sort of cementing of this sort of imperial and humanitarian language together, that um, that ultimately um, Britain wants the United States to come in and take on um, a mandate for the Armenians as a way of cementing this alliance with the United States. And so um, these figures include people like um, T. Lawrence, they include um, um, Yang Christian Smuts, um, and particularly the the round table group of of individuals around uh, the colonial secretary, Lord Milner. And these figures put at the sort of heart of their belief in the post-war war that the United States should be given some sort of responsibility For them, they don't particularly care where it's going to be. They just want the United States to take a mandate because that will be a tangible commitment that will tie the United States into this new Anglo-American-led international order. And ultimately, the decision is taken in the lead up to the the peace conference that Armenia is is the place, uh, both because it serves Britain's strategic interests, but also because there's a sense to which the United States have had this long-standing connection to the Armenians through their missionaries Um, And ultimately, that's going to be the way to to bring the United States in, is to play on American humanitarian sympathy for the Armenians.
0: Mm -hmm. And in this chapter, we really sort of accompany Wilson on his tortured and kind of torturous back and forth deliberations over whether the U.S. should assume a mandate in eastern Anatolia. But I would love to hear you say a little bit more about what's playing out on the ground within eastern Anatolia and within the central Turkish administration in these particular years. So, you know, what do Armenians want? Uh, What are the Turkish nationalists desiring out of a post-war assistance or a League of Nations mandate system?
2: Yes, this this so this ties in also with one of your earlier questions about um, the role of Armenian and and Turkish figures within these questions because it's at this point they start to impact on these debates. As I say earlier, they're not necessarily um, playing a role in the American debates. It's not really something where um, they're they're intervening in this. But what we start to see from the end of the war onwards is that on both sides both Armenian leaders and Turkish leaders are influenced by the Wilsonian language that comes out of the war. This ties in with a lot of the things that Erez Manella has Mm -hmm. um, has shown in his book on the Wilsonian moment. Um, And ultimately, what we start to see is firstly, the Armenians um, playing on those ideas um, and are able um, to, to get Wilson to commit and Ultimately, they, they, their sense, having been quite concerned during the war as to why the United States hasn't intervened on their behalf, or at least declared war on the Ottoman Empire, start to um, believe that through their close relationship with the missionaries, um, together they can advocate for the United States taking a mandate after the war. And this is something which the Armenian um, uh, national leader, Bogos Nubar, um, of the Armenian national delegation, is sort of at the forefront of this. Um, along with Armenian American communities in the United States, are advocating and getting and um, uh, lobbying the Americans. And there's a huge Armenian independence lobby group in the United States, which um, major figures on both sides of the political divide, including leading Republican figures like Henry Cabot Lodge and Elihu Root, um, are um, are very active um, on behalf of Armenian independence. So really, the the, the Armenians have a greater deal of support in the United States than almost any other new nation that's emerging. So that's um, the, the way in which the Armenians um, see it. Um, and at, at the same time, their position is increasingly perilous in the Ottoman Empire, where um, resources are, are very much in decline and um, um, in the aftermath of the war, communities that had already been sort of spread wide by the um, by the cleansing and by, the, um, um, by what, what had occurred during the war itself, were now sort of starving with lack of food um, even though Near East Relief are trying to bring in um, uh, sustenance to these communities. So they're particularly desperate to get the Americans in. But what's particularly interesting is that the Turkish nationalists also play on these ideas as well, um, which would seem quite strange at first, wouldn't it? I mean, the Americans have had this long-standing connection with the Armenians. They're very much um, um, prejudiced towards the Armenians, supportive of the Armenians. Why would Turkish nationalists be looking to turn to the United States and thinking, well, Um, perhaps we would like to see the United States come into the region and take a mandate as well. Well, in the aftermath of the war, it becomes clear that the Ottoman Empire is going to be dismantled. um, And the Turkish nationalist figures um, who are seeing um, what the British are doing as an occupation force in the Ottoman Empire and are concerned already about what the European powers and their past history with with the Middle East Um, They they don't want to see Britain or France take on a mandate for either the Anatolian provinces of of Turkey or broader Ottoman Empire. And and some of these questions are, are quite confused in this period as to what is going to emerge from the Ottoman Empire. But their sense is that what they want to see is the United States take on this mandate, because at the time, it's not clear that Turkey is going is going to sort of survive as an independent state. And so Turkish nationalist leaders, including um, Mustafa Kemal and those around um, him, are becoming more and more attracted to the idea of a um, at least a, a short period of of American um, overseeing of um, or at least a, an informal relationship with the United States that would allow them to ultimately move towards ultimate independence.
0: Yeah, on this point, I did. I I am absolutely fascinated by the Turkish nationalist imaginary of U.S. empire, right? You have this really lovely section where you sort of describe how these Turkish nationalists are imagining um, American power over Cuba and the Philippines and sort of marshalling that as evidence of the benevolence of American empire, right? Despite obviously the the war that the united states was waging yeah. against philippine nationalists so can you just speak a little bit more about how turkish nationalists what what the connect and it sounds like more of the disconnect there was between kind of the actualities of the exercise of american power and what they hoped for
2: yes yeah that that was that that was particularly fascinating to me um, was the way in which um um and this is something which which we have um from the archival record um with a a a american journalist based in the ottoman empire by the name of Louis E. Brown, um, attends the Turkish Nationalist Congress at Sibas in 1919, and he meets with Turkish nationalist leaders, um, Kamal Attaq, and particularly the Turkish feminist um, leader, Halid Adib, who had um, been the first um, uh, Muslim female graduate of of, of an American missionary college. Um, And what these figures are advocating is that the United States at least in in the language that she used at the time, is that the United States should come and do in the Ottoman Empire what it has done in the Philippines and Cuba. And as you say, this um, it seems um, surreal and bizarre for these um, for these things to be invoked. But their sense is that um, one um, this is um, this is something which certainly appeals to Americans. They're using exactly the same language um, in the State Department at the time and in um, in and around Wilson and Wilson himself sees the Philippines um, and Cuba as sort of a model for what he wants to see other um, imperial powers do, that he wants to see um, with the aftermath of the uh, the Jones Act, which has passed in the United States, with this sense to which America at some point is promising the Philippines independence, that even though it maintains this very much um, hegemonic role in Cuba, um, at least nominally is no longer um, an occupying power there. And so they use... um, these ideas to say um in the United States um that this is the sort of model that the other na- the other nations should go for this, would, this is a more progressive um, form of imperialism um and um, the British are also utilizing this as well they're saying well um we can get the Americans into the into the Middle east because they've already um, shown themselves that they're an imperial power even though the British are not exactly um, enamoured with what the um, what the Americans have done in the Philippines, and um, they're, they're certainly not. Um, they, they certainly don't hold that up as a, as a great example. But they um, they say, well, ultimately they've had some experience of this. Let's get them into the Middle East. But it's something where um, Armenian leaders and um, Turkish leaders are, are are tapping into this language um, and saying, well, ultimately the United States um, can come and do in the Ottoman Empire, what it's done in the Philippines and Cuba. And it's mainly as a way of comparing the United States um, with other imperial powers and saying that they they, don't, they desperately don't want to see the British or the French come in because they have far more experience of what the British and the French have done from um, an imperial degree and the way in which they have um, constantly um, been intervening in the Ottoman Empire. And ultimately the sense is that... Um, they they utilise this language of, um, of of what the Americans have done elsewhere as a way really to um, achieve their own political objectives, which is um, perhaps by bringing the Americans into the region. There's a chance that um, that they can achieve independence through that. And at the time, it doesn't look like they're going to have um, much um, freedom of manoeuvre. To, um, to establish that independence themselves because of the, um, the British occupation forces and the way in which the sort of power balance is, is very much against them.
0: So each of your chapters, of course, is, uh, is sort of structured around solutions, right? So you sort of pose the Armenian question and your chapters proceed. For example, chapter one is origins of a solution. The second goes on to Rooseveltian solution, missionary solution, Wilsonian solution, and so on your final chapter is called dissolution right and it strikes me that there are at least two kinds of dissolution going on in this chapter right one is the united states refusal to take a mandate for armenia and then the other was the united states refusal to join the league of nations and you argue in this chapter that the two uh the two refusals were deeply related how so
2: um yes i mean I, the 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 ideas of these solutions previously they in, in some senses they're quite abstract they're quite vague but um Throughout this period, um, going back to the 1890s, there's different conceptions of how you can solve the Armenian question, either by um, intervention, as, as as figures like um, um, Theodore Roosevelt had advocated, um, or by this sort of more the missionary role of, of almost um, playing sort of a civil society role in in helping to bring about this sort of constitutional um, system. Um, Or the sort of more Wilsonian vision, which was less about direct intervention and was more about building a certain sort of international order where um, national self-determination is allowed and you help support um, nations on their way to national self-determination. And ultimately, what you see um, by the end of this period is all of these visions and these ideals um, collapse um, in in, in the response to um, whether the United States will take on the mandate. And um, what we see in relation to the League of Nations is that um, both uh, in in November, um, where the League is first rejected, November 1919, um, the issue of Armenia is used on both sides of the political divide to really push political positions. So for Wilson, he uses sympathy for Armenia um, in his um, stump talks um, um, around the country to sort of say, well, this is the sort of peoples that we need to be saving, um, and we need to take on this role in the world in order to support the sort of people that we um, that we that we sympathise with. And then for those who are more on the irreconcilable side of the um, of the debate, uh, people like William Borah, um, the senator from Idaho, or Hiram Johnson, from um, senator from California, they constantly use the idea of an American mandate. As the example of everything they most detest about Wilsonian internationalism, and really, if you join the League of Nations, this is what you're going to be doing you're going to be sending your boys to police these sort of, uh, as they say, uh, sort of godforsaken areas that are that they'll get no benefit from, no economic benefits, and ultimately will basically be um, carrying the can um, for these European powers. Um, that's ultimately that's 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 what the league is going to be about and so it becomes sort of entrenched within this and it increasingly does even after the first rejection of the league of nations after wilson's stroke because in in the aftermath of this uh, wilson becomes even more fixated on the idea that the mandate question has got to be put to um to the united states it's got to be put to the american public and um that is something which he does after the league is rejected for the second time in March 1920, and by the end of May, beginning of June, he asks the United States to take on this mandate for Armenia, and um, that's that sort of um, is seen by his opponents as Wilson trying to use it as a backdoor into the League of Nations. That if they take on the mandate, then ultimately they would end up in the league by default. Um, but for Wilson, this is sort of the uh, and by this point it's it's difficult to um, completely assess his motivations because he um, he's obviously um, a very sick man by this point but um, part of the reason he becomes so fixated on this is that he sees this as sort of the exemplar of the sort of order that he wants to create, that the United States will take on this leadership role in the world and they will do so on behalf of these ideals um, and that it will do so in a way to provide a light and as he'd um, previously said that That the United States will show the way to the rest of the world how to how to as he described how to walk in the path of liberty, but which is in this respect, it's more a sense of that um, the United States could take on an imperial role that was different to what um, the other European powers were doing, and that this ultimately would provide an example to the other European powers of what um, of what could be done, and would cement America's position as a moral leader in the world. And obviously his, his dreams for this and the Armenians' dreams for this collapse and they dissolve and it's rejected in
0: 1920. So what do the debates about the Armenian genocide tell us in the end about the origins of humanitarianism and global governance? So what do you hope is your reader's primary takeaway from this work?
2: I think the, my main sense is that this provides a window into an international system that might have been. I think for a long time, this issue, particularly the mandate issue, is sort of dismissed in these um, in these studies um, because it ultimately doesn't happen. But I think it exemplifies the sort of transcending of a certain sort of humanitarianism. Um, I think, as you mentioned before, the growing um, lack of. Um, Empathy that the United States and Americans feel for the Armenians by the end of this period sort of shows where the civilizational language and the humanitarian language of the 1890s goes by the end of the First World War, um, and so it, it provides an insight into that. But it also provides a sense of um, and is it, seen at the time by um, by different figures as perhaps providing an insight into a different sort of. Um, humanitarian intervention. Prior to the First World War, um, humanitarian intervention as an idea and as a concept exists, um, um, but it's on a very ad hoc basis and it's done um, by powers acting on their own uh, national interests. But ultimately, the the sense is by by some of these figures at the time is that this could have led, if the Americans had taken a mandate for Armenia, to a very different sort of international system where um, ultimately an international organisation um, would um, would would choose powers to intervene when um, egregious abuses of human rights would occur, and that they would then engage in sort of a nation-building process over, um, afterwards. So it's really a sort of a an important junction in the um, in the emergence of ideas about humanitarian intervention and global order. In that respect, um, at the same time, it's also um, something which which um, provides an insight into the the different sorts of international order that other nations um, have in mind as well. Um, So for the British in particular, um, this was really fundamental to their strategy for the post-war world. And ultimately, uh, their whole conception of the mandate system rested on the United States taking a mandate, and they end up setting up a whole system that they quickly lose interest in after the war. Um, and it's because the United States hasn't played the role that they wanted it to. And um, for British figures, they see this as a sort of part of the sort of a fundamental point in um, in the decline of British um, power, because ultimately um, this whole vision of this Anglo-American alliance that the of nations will be, be will be built on um, falls apart, and the whole relationship with the United States falls apart um in the in the interwar period. And at least in the early part of this, the Near East plays a major role in this. So when Mustafa Kemal leads the um, um the Turkish nationalist movement um to overturn the um the order established at Paris in 1919, the British blame the Americans for not having taken a mandate for the whole reason why um this whole order has fallen apart, why um why Armenians um are are left sort of stateless and vulnerable so in that sense, you get, you get an insight into, um, in, into what the British say. So so as I say, firstly, I think the take home is a different sort of um, humanitarian intervention um, is, is conceived. Um, a different sort of international order might have emerged if the US had taken a mandate, both from the British perspective, but also from the American perspective as well, because these debates over the mandate have such a profound legacy the language in, in, in 1920 during the campaign, um, Warren Harding sort of coins the phrase um, to a great extent of America first um, in this campaign to talk about the sort of things that, that the Armenian mandate represented, that um, that he was think- that Harding was thinking of America first, that safety as well as charity began at home, and that ultimately taking things like the mandate was not putting American interests first, that this was sort of a mushy internationalism And so what we see is the the role that this mandate debate plays in the transition from um, sort of a a more sense the United States should take on an international role to one which is going to take on a much more narrowly nationalist role and a much more narrowly confined role in the world. So my sense is that the take homes, I hope, will will be of interest to historians of, of international governance of the British Empire and of the United States.
0: So the book is not even out yet, uh, so this is perhaps an unfair question, but is there anything that you're working on right now, or do you have a dream project percolating next?
2: I am working on a new project at the moment, which um, should hopefully be out um, in, um, in a couple of years. Um, I, I'm working actually with um, with a colleague at, at the University of Cambridge, um, uh, Brendan Sims, who I mentioned at the start of this um, of this interview, who, um, who I worked with on the, the History of Humanitarian Intervention Project. But we're doing um, a book, which um, is sort of provisionally entitled Five Days in December and is about the five days uh, in between the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor um, on December the 7th, 1941 and Hitler's declaration of war on the United States. And our plan is to write sort of an international history of those five days from um, the major capitals around the world.
0: Well, Charlie Laterman, thank you so much for speaking with us. This book was a pleasure to read and best of luck. And we look forward to your next project.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak to you too.